morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 41 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Clarice Lockery. I'm Hannah Flint. And I'm Amon Woman. This week, baby and that who? It's all about <laughs> baby Ada, the lamb-human hybrid raised uh, by Numi Rapace in the surreal Icelandic drama Lamb. And I also talked to Numi all about lambs and babies and lamb babies. <laughs> tonight, tonight, <laughs> we review Steven Spielberg's fresh take on a classic musical, West Side Story. And Aaron Sorkin goes behind the scenes on a beloved American sitcom with Being the Ricardos. Plus, in this week's hot take, we debate the casting of actors in roles outside their race and culture. But first off, how is everyone doing? Good. <laughs> and moving on. No, I'm joking. Um, yeah. What have I been? Oh, I, I attended the Biffers um, last Sunday. That was fun. I know. Uh, we got a text. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My wife is here. <laughs> it's so that I didn't know. I didn't know she was coming. You know, she didn't you know communicate with me. I don't know what's happening. Google, what are you doing? Um, no, uh, she, she didn't even come down and party with the rest of us afterwards. So we didn't couldn't even get our boogie on. It was annoying. Um, but you no, know, she still she was still looking amazing. She hosted an award that was fun. Um, I had a nice chat with Shopper Derizu uh, again, and I met uh, Riz Ahmed. Hannah also met Riz Ahmed uh, this week. Um, so, so yeah, now it's really cool. I, I've really been to a ceremony like that before. Um, so it was a cool vibe to just you know be there. Uh, and yeah, the, the 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 menu though. You talk about the menu, people. It was not good. Were you on a jury? Were you, were you doing a... No, last year I chaired the new talent jury. Uh, this year I was just a just a voter. Um, and I think I did an article for the Biffa website. But other than that, nice. uh, no. Yeah. Whose table were you on? I was on the Sweetheart table, um, which was really, really fun. Sweetheart uh, had a bit of success on the night, so that was cool. Uh, the really big winner was After Love, um, yeah. which I, I, I liked the movie. Obviously, we discussed it a few weeks ago. I did not see it winning pretty much everything on the night. Um, mm-hmm. And I was like sat like a, a table away from them, so I was in sort of close. They, they were celebrating a lot, and I'm very, very happy for Aline Khan. Very cool night for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what have I done? I've, I've done a lot of interviews this week. You met um, Riz Ahmed. I did. Yeah, I hosted a Q and A with Riz. He was very nice, and it was a really good conversation. Um, interviewed Jessica Chastain. Interviewed hey. Keanu. Yahya uh, Abdul-Mateen, uh, <laughs> Carrie-Anne Moss, Paul Thomas Anderson, Ruth Neger. So, yeah, it's been a pretty mad week, uh, all via Zoom, by the way. Uh, but, yeah, it's been uh, yeah, it's been a fun week, although I feel like I'm ready <laughs> to just wind down. Oh, yes, 100%. Uh, oh, also, uh, myself and Clarice had a really, really fun Wednesday night. Explain, Clarice. Um, we drew some cats. We drew some cats. <laughs> um, so we we went to an art class hosted by uh, Thomas Una Smith, who taught Benedict Cumberbatch how to draw the Louis Wayne cats in the electrical life of Louis Wayne. Uh, and she also like she does um, art for for a bunch of movies for Notting Hill, the Harry mm. Potter movies. Uh, she's awesome. I didn't listen to anything she was saying <laughs> because I just drew my own cats. I just drew my own cats. They're cats in little tiny outfits, which is what I enjoy. 
and yeah, none we, of the cats liked me so <laughs> it's fine you could tell you're a dog person um i had this when we arrived there was this one cat what was it a cat called was it called legolas yeah i think it was legolas <laughs> it's literally literally just sat on my sat on my lap for a good hour and so, so i was having to like draw over it but uh yeah it was so much fun i i'm also a dog person but having that little cat little cute little cat uh sit on my lap i was like oh do i like pussies <laughs> where can we see this move worthy artwork on our socials <laughs> hang it in, in the, the loop, loop, loop. <laughs> in the national portrait gallery <laughs> yeah and uh, yeah, we'll be covering Electrical Life of Lily Wayne when it comes out. But uh, it's awesome. It's we great. It. <laughs> <laughs> so let's dive into the movies. First up, it's Lamb. <laughs> <laughs> well okay so i this this i had to do this one because we had to but it makes me really uncomfortable to say but i'm gonna say it <laughs> brave clarice you will let me know when the lamb stops screaming won't you <laughs> I hate doing that. <laughs> I've only watched it once and it was like the worst experience. It makes me so uncomfortable, that movie. For obvious I reasons. Love that I love though. I love that you like that makes you so uncomfortable that movie and that's literally your namesake. <laughs> because of that, because I, I'm not used to hear I never hear my name in films. Yeah. So to have it being spoken by one of cinema's greatest villains <laughs> is hard. It's very scary. <laughs> But Liam tells the story of a couple, Maria, played by Numir Pass, and Ingvar, played by Hilmer Snell Gunnarsson, who live with their herd of sheep on a beautiful but remote farm in Iceland. When they discover a mysterious newborn on their farmland, they decide to keep it and raise it as their own. The couple are overwhelmed with joy at the unexpected prospect of this new family and blissfully unaware that chaos and revenge now awaits them. Blending folk horror with contemporary Scandi noir, Liam is truly like nothing you've ever seen before. Directed by Valdemar Jorhansen, the film also stars Bjorn Hirner Haradsen and Ingvar Eggert Sirugsen. But before we get into our view, pronunciation. <laughs> really I, I spent like three days in Iceland, so I'm an expert now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which we, I actually talked to Numi about it came up my brief time in Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we chat a little about landscape, about um, motherhood, animals, our relationship with animals. We, we chat a lot of stuff. But um, before we dive into review, here is my interview with the wonderful Numira Pass. Welcome to the Fate of Light podcast. I just wanted to say thank you, first off, for this film. Uh, it's such a, a beautiful, like, moving uh, piece of work. And it, 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 for me, there's lots of things going on with it. Obviously, we'll get into that. It, it really made me reassess my relationship with animals and, and with nature and, and with what love is. So I, I just want to say thank you, first off, for that. Um, 
But what's been really interesting to me is seeing this film described again and again and again as a horror film. And that's how it was sold to me before I watched it. And, and so when I did actually sit down to watch it, I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. I, I, you're kind of making a face. So I wondered what what are your thoughts on it? <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised because I, when we shot it, I would never imagine that it would have been described as a horror film. I, I feel like it's a family drama um, and, and it's, a, it's a film about grief and, and loss and, 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 the, and life, you know, and, and, and the need to be, to, be, to be a mother again, you know, and, and how far you would go. Yeah, and, and you've described um, this beautiful working relationship that you developed with um, Valdemar. And it's one that the quote was one that focused on exploring and investigating. And I wondered if, if that sense of fluidity and openness actually changed any part of the film. Every every scene, every day was um, um, we were exploring the situations. And even though he knew what he you know, he kind of had a mood board and, a, um, and his frames and he knew how he wanted to shoot it. But when you, when you work with animals and kids, like you just have to kind of go with whatever happens. And it was always like, you know, you never knew what they were going to do. And, um, you know, it was like one scene we're shooting, like I was sleeping, supposed to be sleeping on the bed and the cat, Carlos, his name was Carlos. He was supposed to jump up and bed. The bed was his favorite spot in the house. So he was always like sleeping on the bed. Um, and he was supposed to jump up on the bed and they were like throwing like cat candy on me to, for him to like follow and jump up on the bed and like eat the candy, right? So I'm there like trying to like pretend that I'm sleeping and like the candy keep hitting me in my face and I try to ignore it, you know? And the cat is just <laughs> sitting there just looking at the candy. You know, and then they're like, you know, five minutes, we just kept the camera rolling because that's what, it, so Valtimar kind of just let it roll a lot on the animals and see, you know, kind of caught moments when they did what we wanted. But like sometimes we had to roll for quite some time. So it was kind of five minutes or something. And then it was like, cut, cut, cut. He's not going to go up on the bed. As soon as they said cut, he jumps up and start eating candy. It was like, roll the camera <laughs> and then roll and he jumps down again. And it was like, what? Like, do, do you know? Like, you're just like trying to make it hard for us. And like every day we had to be like flexible and just like adjust and accept. Um, so so he was very playful in that way. And and um, and I felt like we we really had a deep connection, me and Valtimar. We didn't speak much. So it was very, we, I feel like we kind of into the more primal side. We became more, more connected to the animal and the communication we had with the animal than the human kind of verbal interaction that you're used to. That's so interesting that you say that because I, I feel like you sense that in the film and that use of silence. It was like, oh, I the animals are your co-stars in this film. You know, they're not the animals in the film. They are no, no, characters in sure. themselves. Definitely. And, yeah, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how the film overall, at least a big takeaway for me was, was the exploration of um, this division or lack of division between the animal and the human. You know, growing up in Iceland and growing up on a farm, I am um, animals were majority and we were minority. <laughs> and you always had that, you know, you just had to um, accept the fact that, you know, if you if, if you all would, would like to turn on me, I would be so 
like screwed, you know what I mean? So I, I feel like I've always had this great like respect for animals and, um, and I feel like Valtemar, who also kind of grew up on a farm partly, um, we did use and like, I feel like it was very much in sync with the animals and very, very much um, a respectful relationship. But also, you know, in Iceland, I think there's, I believe there's like 350, the population is like 350,000 and there's like, there's like seven or 800,000 sheep. So it's like, you know, there are like, <laughs> we were living in, in their, in their country and there's many of them. So, and, and also I would say that the film does deal with, you know, mankind versus nature and how we deal with nature. And if you take something that is not yours to have, eventually, you know, nature will come after you. Yeah, because that perfectly leads me on to my next question, which was, um, I think, what this film has to say about love and where love is placed because your character is a woman who is essentially trying to project the love that she has for a child that she lost onto a child that is not hers and is maybe or maybe not human <laughs> yeah i mean that that's how strong her her desperation is to to be a mother and to 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 be all that she kind of wanted to be and what she got like she got like ripped apart in the middle of that relationship and she was left hanging and she has no anchor she is not it's almost like in the beginning of the film she's rootless she's she's just doing what she needs to do but she's not fully alive and then through this gift that has been giving to her this possibility to be a mother again and you know she that becomes the anchor that becomes the bridge from her to start to do to to interact with with life again and and with her husband and and to live again and it becomes the summer of you know the return to life but she also knows somehow in the back of her head that she's kind of taken something that she shouldn't have and and but she's she the the, the brutal need to, to be that and to to heal is so it just blinds her and kind of uh, allows her to 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 embrace the the primal aggressive violent side of herself as well you know that's how strong that need is yeah and, and as an actor I got obviously you're able to to bring in all your personal feelings of motherhood into the part but I was really interested in the fact that like you actually deliver baby lambs in this film and how does that experience of of being this part of bringing life into the world how did that help with your character that was my first day on set um and i came to iceland on a sunday afternoon because i was shooting something else in the us and i was jet lagged and you know came there and was like arrives at the smallest set ever in like a mini trailer and i'm like kind of trying to keep myself awake and just waiting for the knock on my door for when there's like a there's a, a sheep ready to to give birth and i've seen the the farmer deliver a lamb in the morning and this is like 
maybe 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. And then I get the knock and I'm running down to the barn, like down on my knees and it's like, roll camera. And I just see this little head come out. And I was like, oh you know, you can see this, this <laughs> sheep's vagina open up and this little creature coming out. And I was like, this is really happening, you know? And then um, I, I kind of, you know, from that point, that was the birth of the movie and the birth of Arta. And, and from that point and onwards, it was just like, we just went deeper and deeper and deeper into the lamb universe. And I felt like the world outside, which is fading and became like distant memories. Was that, I'm guessing that wasn't an artistic choice to do day one lamb birthing. That was more because you can't control lamb birthing, right? Exactly. And it was, <laughs> I think, you know, there was only like 10 sheeps left on the entire island that hadn't like delivered because lamb lambing season starts in april and i was filming this movie the secrets we keep in new orleans so they were really like you know hoping that those sheeps would hold their babies in until i was finished <laughs> it was like the last little like you know uh, we were hanging on a little thread um so it was the last moment oh wow because i so i've been to iceland once and i went during the summer and I have such a precious mem memory of standing on the beach, you know, with the midnight sun and oh, yeah. the light. It's so, it's magical and kind of mysterious and, and otherworldly. And there is a real sense of that in this film, I, I feel like. And I, I wondered if you could talk a little about, about that as somebody who's lived in Iceland, you know, how just <laughs> that perpetual daylight like fuels the place. Some people get like affected really negative by it because it's it's kind of it's hard to keep track of you know a rhythm. You don't have anything to really hold on to, and I don't sleep much. So for me, it's like it's horrible because I'm like yeah, it's like three in the morning, it's full on daylight, and it's like you know we were shooting nights, and I got back to my house in this small community called Akureyri, and it's like six in the morning, full on daylight. And then it's like, you know, 11 in the morning, still on awake and it's like full on daylight. And then you go, it's just everything start melting and reality and dreams and hallucinations almost start to melt into each other. And then you're filming with like lambs and babies and it was just quite trippy. Um, and and uh, but in a situation like this, I think you just need to to go with it and allow whatever happens and whatever comes up in you to let it come and let it flow and, and not be scared. And I feel like, you know, a lot of things in, in, in today's society, we want to control things. We want to be in control. We want to know what's going to, going to happen. We want to stick to a schedule, to a timeline. And, you know, it's like everything is on, on a clock. But when you, when you film in this, in a, in a, in a, in an environment like that, and those kind of hours and with animals and kids, it's just, it just start to drift and it's like, there's no way you can control it. So I was, I just decided it's like, okay, even if I don't sleep for three days, it's fine. <laughs> I'm just gonna allow whatever happens gonna happen, you know? Um, but it's, it definitely helps and it's, and it's, it can be scary, but it's also, it's beautiful because it brings the best and the worst out of you. Is it the sense, I guess, like as, as an actor, you know, because you're not thinking in your mind, okay, I need to do this emotion for this scene and this scene is scheduled for this day. While you have more, I guess, with the fluidity, you've got more of an impulse to just be, like be with that character all the time. I mean, does that, 
Does that make any sense? Is that is yeah, that for sure? Yeah. Also, when it's a very non-verbal film, even like so, you, you it's like farm life, but in a kind of strange setting. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, you know, it's definitely and and you know, sometimes we had to shift things around. And we had we did have a schedule, but you know, quite often it had to change. And, you know, I'm I'm trying to get Arta to fall asleep. And then, you know, we're all kind of waiting for for the for the for the lamp for, for the you know, the person who was in charge of the lamps to 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 put her to sleep. And then when she was finally sleeping, you know, I had to tiptoe into the house and they handed her over to me. And there was like roll camera and there's like action. And then she wakes up and it's like, bah, bah, and it's like everyone out, you know, switching to a human baby. So it was always this kind of, you had to be just, um, you know, all your kind of, you know, normally as an actress, you're like, okay, this is my close up. This is, you know, this is my moment. It's like, nah, there's no moments for you. <laughs> you're just like in this universe. <laughs> Oddly, that, that kind of helps with the believability. Um, and I've got one more question. I, I'm always interested in sort of the industry side of stuff. And, you know, you'd worked with Valdemar previously on Prometheus, which is a film that I love. <laughs> And he was working on the special effects. And then this is his featured debut. And I wondered, you know, as someone living in the UK, I don't know if I would have been able to see Lamb if, you know, you hadn't jumped on the project and lent your clout to make this happen. I mean, in reality, how much does does you signing on to a project like this, you know, change what is possible? Um, pr probably pretty much. I mean, with... Not that I think of myself as a, you know, super special, but it does, you know, it's in our, as you know, in the industry, it's this weird system of being bankable. And then like some people can get a movie financed and, you know, if, if, if an, a certain actor signs onto a project, they will get a bigger budget or better distribution or whatever. And, and movies would start travel. And definitely when I, when I came on board, it, you know, things changed and, it's been like that on a couple of films I've done. Um, and But I try to not look at myself so much from the outside. I just try to follow my instincts and my heart and what I want to do. And, you know, obviously a lot of people around me was like quite hesitant to this project. It was like, he's a first time director. You're doing this small, like non-budget, like no money at all for you. You can make so and so much money on this other thing. And, you know, you're going to go off and do this movie about like what, like, a lamb child, you were like, what, wait, what? Like, <laughs> it sounded like the worst idea ever. But I, for me, it, it just was one of those no brainers and my intuition, my whole being just told me, this is what you have to do. I mean, I'm so glad that your intuition told you to do this. And Thank I'm you. really happy that the film exists. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Sorry, that was new me. And yes, Prometheus did come up. I mean, I should squeeze it in there. So <laughs> Can I do a fun, fun fact? Yes. I once um, uh, saw, took in the new year at Numi's house. <laughs> oh, it was like a house party and she's like new one of my friends. I ended up being there. She has a very nice house and she's a very lovely host. So there you go. That's, she, my, that's um, my little name job. <laughs> did she have loads of Prometheus stuff lying around the house? She didn't. She didn't. I can't even remember if she had any. It was, a, it was a very big kind of, yeah, it was kind of like a, I think it's like a converted 
I don't give any details away. I'm just always interested about like how in actors' houses, how much yeah. of their own memorabilia they keep and display, or do they have like a secret room of shame I, I that they go I in? I don't remember her having stuff like that out. Okay, um, so it's all in a cupboard. Like it's definitely there, but it's in a cupboard, and she goes in the cupboard sometimes. Well, I was only like, in one mm. area. I wasn't. I wasn't sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> Me just going around. Let's have a look. This is my MTV Cribs. <laughs> she doesn't. Yeah. But uh, let's. Well. There is a house in Lamb, yeah, <laughs> and there is um, quite an isolated house. So I, I think maybe let's talk about the setting of Lamb first. Mm. We'll dig into the Lamb Lamb later. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Hannah, what did you what did you think about the atmosphere of this film? And we I talked a little bit about this in the interview and like the space and the isolation, like how all of that is set up in the movie. Yeah, yeah. I think what I, I suppose what I think is interesting about it is. Um, I suppose there's like a, you know, folk horror, there's that foreboding and the idea that it's so bright all the time that kind of it goes against everything that you know about horror. Like in the same way, like Midsummer, it's like it's too bright. <laughs> it's like you don't expect, you know, you don't in the daytime. If the daytime is supposed to be this safe space, but obviously at that time of year, it's pretty much light all the time, especially where they are. They don't go from going through darkness. And I thought the sheer expanse of it the idea that they're so isolated and you're I suppose in a way you're kind of you're not quite sure what's going on but you know there's something going on it just makes it even more claustrophobic so as much as it's this massive like you know wide landscape and stuff you're like no one it's like no one can hear you scream (laughs) if anything goes wrong um and I thought I thought it was really beautiful. And I, I think I remember, I mean, I watched it with my dad when he was, because this was at LFF. And so we had a screener and um, it was so interesting. Cause like, I don't know, we were like, it was just we, all the way through. You're just like, when's the other shoe going to drop? Cause you're like, wait, it just keeps you guessing. And he was, even we were like, is this, this, they must've shot it out there. This is beautiful. You can't CGI this shit unless they did. And I did done a really good job, but I assumed it was like, this just beautiful, beautiful. It just looked beautiful. And I think it just kind of all added to the kind of foreboding and claustrophobia and all that jazz that kind of makes you wonder like what actually is going on here. Okay, Amon, I'm going to ask you this question as well in a second here, and I want to get it from you as well quickly first. Do you consider, because I asked Numi this, and she had some thoughts, <laughs> do you consider this movie to be a horror? Uh, mm, I think no. it's got horror elements. Mm. I don't know if it, but this is the thing, Like, I think we're kind of past, we're in a post-explicit genre age. I think there's kind of like, it's like... Um, you compare it to The Nest by Sean Durkin, like that felt like a horror movie, but it wasn't. It's like a psychology, but used horror elements of like this lonely castle, people changing, you know, I think that's the point of it. It's like, so horror is kind of in a way, it's, I suppose it's an extreme reflection of our own psychological fears and stuff. So I feel like in a way in this is less explicit because you know all the things I kind of said and also it's about motherhood but it's also like you're waiting there's something and even the way it's set up and shot in a way I wonder if like the director was thinking I want to set this up like a horror like shoot it as if it was that to quite and really amp up I suppose 
the drama, the fam, familiar drama at the core of it, um, I suppose a sense of loss and what it means. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't say it's an explicit horror, but I definitely think there's like a horror elements to it. Amon. I agree with that. I agree with all of that. Nothing much to add. The only thing to add to all of that is the cinematographer's name, which is Eli Aronson, because uh, I do agree that it does look beautiful and he does a lot of really good work in this film. And, but that, I mean, it's interesting because... What do you yeah. think? Well... I mean, you obviously had this conversation in an interview that we haven't had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think... I felt like the movie was slightly missold to me because, you know, it was in the cult strand of LFF, which London Film Festival, which really suggests more the, the horror side of things. And I think the 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 only issue there is that it really undersells the sweetness of the film. Yeah. Because it is it is really just about love and family and where you can project love and the stuff that Maria Numi's character does throughout the film, you know, are not, <laughs> it's not all kindness and joy and love and lovely things. There is a darkness there, but the thing that's always propelling her is that she, she lost a child um, at some point before the film took place. And she has all of this love inside of her that she doesn't really know where to yeah, project. She needs, she to needs she needs like a process for her grief and um that comes in the very unusual form of a, a lamb a lamb human baby i mean Ramon, i think maybe this this still kind of brings up the horror element of it what did you think of the actual central idea of the lamb human baby <laughs> the way that it looked <laughs> was it cute Just, i mean it's completely <laughs> batshit like i thought that you know annette and Tatain, we're in like mm-hmm. in, we're in a two horse race for where this film of the year, ladies and gentlemen. Lamb has entered the chat um, <laughs> because <laughs> this movie is weird. But I, I, the the way in which they brought the Ada uh, to life uh, was really, I think, it's a mixed mixture of puppetry and CGI, and it's really, really effective. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure I could go all the way fully into cute because I was I was Peter for most of the film. Like, what is going on here? What is this? What are you doing? Have you seen um, the series Servant, the M. Night Shyamalan? No, I haven't. So there's a lot of like, this is why I say it's kind of horror. It's like kind of crossover. If you've seen okay. that series, it's about um, a mother who's lost a child. And then they have, I think, as a kind of, um, uh, I suppose, a, a therapy method, they have a fake baby so she can come to terms with it. But then the baby comes to life. Um, oh. And it's like, it's this weird thing. It's like, how is this baby alive? And it's that simple, like, and, Ru- and basically Rupert Grint is the like, what is going on here type of sort of situation. But yeah, yeah. it's quite no, interesting. I, I'm definitely the what is going on here character in this film without question. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I liked it as sort of a metaphor to talk about the things that we've already mentioned, which is about motherhood and family and loss and channeling love and all the rest of it. Um, so, yeah. I always think back to that um, that quote from Hustlers where Jennifer Lopez, you know, her character's like, motherhood is a mental illness. And it just feels like it applies in so many ways. <laughs> yeah. I I found the baby, I found baby Ada quite cute. I yeah. I'm of, shocked. You? No. I sort of wish she was more lamb. <laughs> Needs more lamb. Um, more lamb and less baby because the lamb part was very cute. Um, and I want I just one more thing I wanted to cover is the uh, the performances because mm. uh, I think everybody does quite a wonderful job here and very good acting with the animals. What did you think? 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. Because especially in the early going, there's really not much dialogue. So you just have to go really off the performances and the very sort of, you know, the facial expressions, the subtle looks the actors are giving to one another. And it absolutely works because they're so good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Nimi, Nimi especially, I think, really is impressive. She's, she's always been good, uh, but she's especially good here. I think that's one thing to kind of tell our listeners that this is truly stripped back. Like, mm-hmm. like if there's there's not a wasted word, I would say in this, and I think that's also what adds to it, adds to the kind of that foreboding because you're like, no one's talking about this, and like, and you know, some of the shots that's coming in, and there's there's you know, we mentioned there's like a folklore element to it, and obviously there's a, a sheep baby, so you've got to imagine like how did that how did that baby come to be and so there's all this lingering presence but again going back to like the camera work and those those long long held moments and even with the sheep i mean mm. <laughs> that's a very good sheep acting or if it's cgi again like it was just very well well done and it's not for everyone like my dad my dad was like he did not like it at all it is it is Bill quite was not slow. a fan of lamb uh, but I was, I loved it. I love it. It was kind of weird and kind of beautiful. Um, yeah. It is, it, it, I get that it's definitely not for everyone because it is quite slow. You have to sort of get on its wavelength in that regard. Um, but if, you, if you're if you patient with it, I think there's a lot of awards that you'll find with it. It's, I, I liked it too. Yeah, I like, I mean, interesting talking about the slowness and the lack of dialogue. A part of it that I really liked is the way that everyone does sort of just doesn't question <laughs> why there's a lamb baby yeah and, except, except peter <laughs> yeah there's like one character that does but mostly it's like and i like because it, it really um it's a good exploration of our infinite capacity to love mm-hmm. that if a, a lamb human baby is just delivered into your life you're like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna love i'm gonna love her because mm-hmm. love is love i'm sorry it's, not to it's, use it's, that it's, phrase yeah but... <laughs> but I think it's like, like did you guys see midnight mass no, not yet. Okay, well, <laughs> the kind of there's this this thing that happens and no one questions it. And I think sometimes we're real we're willing to ignore, like, because don't forget, like, again, as I said, this lamb, this baby lamb, came from somewhere, and it's like mm-hmm. with our willingness to not interrogate things, to try and like make ourselves feel better, and not thinking about the risk, not thinking about the consequences. Um, and I think that's one of the things in here as well. It's like they're so they're not thinking about long-term it's like they've got this short-term fix of like oh we're seeing it and not thinking about like all the wider ramifications of what this kind of thing brings to it and I think that's also a big human condition in a sense mm-hmm. like we'll, we'll do anything sometimes we go a bit crazy where we don't we don't we're not rational basically how sometimes feet emotions do not make us rational about things and I think that's what's really uh I think that's what's at the core of this as well um, especially when grief is involved. So that brings us to uh, time to screen, stream, or skip it. Hannah, what's your judgment? Screen. Amon. I concur. Screen. And I would definitely give this a screen. From lambs to sharks. The like the gang sharks in West Side Story. <laughs> Tonight, tonight, the world is full 
This is my first time in New York City. I want to be happy here. I want to make a life at home. Are you ready? Tonight is about family. The first gringo boy who smiles at you. I never seen you before. You're not Puerto Rican. Is that okay? When you're a critic, you're a critic all the way from your first five stars to your last dying day. Sundime, sundime. <laughs> okay, if you didn't understand, that was a West Side Story. Uh, and yes, once again, it's love at first sight. It strikes when young Tony spots Maria at a high school dance in 1957, New York City. Their burgeoning romance helps to fuel the fire between the warring jets in the sharks. With a lot of dance fighting, dance fights, jazz hands, crumbles. Two rival gangs vying for control of these streets. So this is um, an adaptation of an adaptation. <laughs> this is a remake of an adaptation. So this was originally a Broadway musical based on, inspired by Romeo and Juliet. It got brought mm-hmm. to. Um, 1960 was it 1961 uh they made it into a movie and then this is basically steven spielberg's remake or as the quote unquote reimagining yeah of Um, of the original stage play but also kind of the movie (laughs) absolutely the movie like come on uh and it starts stars rachel ziegler ansel elgort ariana debose david alvarez mike feist and of course OG Rita Moreno, the original Anita, which she won an Oscar for. Um, luckily, she didn't have to brown her face up this time around. <laughs> so, um, so I think the question, the age-old question is, I think we talk about this a lot, is like, when is a remake, when should a remake be made? And I suppose for you, what, I, 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 Clarice, what... What are the benefits of remaking this film 60 years after the original? What what does this, I suppose, um, add, uh, change or add to the story that you think works? Well, I think you've gotten right to the heart of why I feel so, like, weird or, like, very mixed about this yeah. movie. Um, because, obviously, there is the the immediate thing of you can get the casting right you can not put actors in in brown face that's a very simple thing to change and uh you know very positive step for representation for giving you know somebody like uh, arena debose such an incredible role in anita like that's fantastic for her for rachel zegler um but i think the problem with west side story is that like it has such a complicated legacy and there's a really great quote from Lin-Manuel Miranda where he basically said West Side Story has been uh for for Latin people the our biggest blessing and our greatest curse <laughs> because you know even if you get the casting right you know even if you change a few superficial things you're still talking about you know the most famous representation of Puerto Ricans in popular culture is one where it's about gang warfare and you know they're fighting each other and it's you know violence and death and it's also you know a musical 
written by white people as well you know it's not like mm-hmm. in the heights it's not people being able to tell their own story yeah. uh That's so what Chiara Alegria Hudes she said it's like most of the Spanish or Latin musicals that you have is kind of steeped in like Latin pain or violence yeah. whereas in, like you said in the heights is probably the first one where it's about Latin joy yeah yeah and and I think that really brings me to the question of like what is the point of remaking it now like especially by Steven Spielberg so not even to say okay well let's have a a Latin person like bring that perspective to it and really change the original musical and say something new you know instead to have Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner come in and say okay hey we're gonna like change a couple of things but not really and some of that we can get into it but some of the stuff they change just makes it worse mm-hmm. <laughs> in some aspects it's better in some worse in some aspects still it's I yeah I don't know I, I don't know I don't know I have so many feelings about this <laughs> it's interesting um I'm gonna say right up front this was my first exposure to any type of West Side Story obviously I knew that West Side Story was a thing but I hadn't watched the musical and watched the the uh, film so yeah this is my first exposure to it so I can't really comment on what it's updating because I don't know what it's you know I don't know the specifics of some of the stuff that it's updating um I do know that in I believe the movie all the um uh the roles that are played by Latinx uh, actors in Steven Spielberg's movie were played by white actors. Um, is that right? No, no, because, no, I mean, some of them were. But Natalie okay. Woods played Maria, and she's obviously not Latin. Yeah. And she also had a yeah. voice dubbed. Well, um, pretty much Port- everybody. Yeah. Rita Moreno is Puerto Rican, but she had she had to darken her skin to do it. And then, right. you know, yeah. they did a lot of that. There are a few Latin actors yeah. in it. I, but the actor who played well, Bernardo, he wasn't, no, was he? No, right. it was he pretty was like much the... everybody except for Rita Marino was yeah, Marino. white. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so on that level, this remake is an improvement. I think I like that they had a non-binary actor playing a transgender actor too. We can get into the effectiveness of that role in a bit. Um, but there's a couple of instances like that where I feel like uh, the updates, some of the updates that Spielberg was giving to the story work. Yeah, I mean. I'm a, a big fan of the original musical. Um, mm. And I think everything you said, I think everything you both, you said, Clarice, is right. It's like, it, it, I, I question why Steven Spielberg would, why he wanted to do this remake, considering, I don't know, he's not really a remake sort of person, is he? What's he, he's, he's, he's always a, like, I mean, he's adapted, like, you know, stage plays, or he's adapted, like, books. I get mm-hmm. that, but it's like, I suppose one of the things I felt by the end of the film, I was like, well, people are saying this is a reimagining. Well, West Side Story was a reimagining of Romeo and Juliet in every single way. That's what I call a reimagining. You're imagining the story and fundamentally changing it. But as someone who has watched the original musical, I, I, it, it sticks so closely to so much about, about that film. It felt like you've done a very good copy like this is a very good knockoff of Steven Spielberg but <laughs> where where where's your where's your artistic eye come in that hasn't just even I, I mean yeah I think we were discussing this Clarice but I think so much about it yeah they've switched the orders of some of the songs 
uh, and they might have like expanded some of the dance scenes like America is quite different to it but the dance numbers are the same the arrangements sound pretty much the same um you know uh, they there's it didn't it just it felt like I was watching an original mu- musical with different actors and a bit more like I suppose a contemporary understanding of what's going on and so I just wonder why is the one of the greatest directors <laughs> in the world why is he just doing this? You know what I mean? It's like doing the shot for shot remake of Lion King. It felt like, what's the point? <laughs> this makes me really intrigued to watch the original now. Um, because everything, I mean, again, I haven't, I haven't seen the original, but just the reception to this film and knowing how much I enjoyed this film, I um, didn't expect to hear that this was like a shot for shot type thing. It felt Not perfect, but it just, if you've yeah. watched it, I mean, Clarice, do you agree? It just... Yes, I it's I think it's partially because so much about West Side Story is iconic that yeah. you can't really change it. Like the choreography is it's different but also is it really different because it's still the the finger snaps and the ballet yeah. and you know like because they can't change that. They can't change that. And like the the camera work and the framing it's different but also it's copying a lot of the like the sort of high shots like yeah it's the low shots mm. it's copying a lot of the stuff but going hey maybe what can we do now that couldn't have been done in 1961 yes. so some of the the steady cam work is a little bit more intricate because it's easier to do that now um but yeah it's not there's nothing in it that i would say that is so fundamentally different artistically, narratively, <laughs> thematically, that makes me go, oh, cool. Okay, that's the reason they did it. Yes, yes. So I suppose let's talk about, um, we kind of alluded to the to the story, Tony Kushner's update, which in many ways I did, I liked how certainly it's far more explicit about things than the original obviously could be. You know, there's various scenes, especially um, a scene, a later scene with, with Anita, um mm-hmm. quite a harrowing scene which never kind of you know it's one of those classic you know like gone with the wind it's like something bad happened but we're not going to say it we're just going to cut away and you know hope everyone gets the message so um Clarice then you mentioned those things about the story though that didn't work for you and I, I is uh, Tony's Tony's new backstory yeah or that scene even I found it a really what weird artistic choice because in I I haven't seen the stage version so I can only compare it to the movie in the movie there's no women in that scene really um but in the new version there's this very weird thing where like the white women on the heroes of that scene yeah, which I was like, why did they do that? That's weird because of all the why ways are you excusing to put women, white women. <laughs> well, I think what's so interesting of all the ways that you could incorporate more women into this world. Do you know what I mean? Because obviously yeah. it's a very masculine movie. The choice to put it in a scene where Anita is being attacked is is mad to me, and then do it as if like, oh, they're the good guy. They're they're good. and it just sorry, wasn't this person saying just literally seconds before? don't do Spanish it. <laughs> like, yeah. She's a racist. When it comes, it's like one of those things, it's like, uh, I can excuse, I can excuse racism, but I draw the line. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. it's like that very white feminist type of thing. Exactly. That, mm. that like in no reality would the white women not be there cheering it on. Like, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I found that trying to weird. make all women are sympathetic. They're not. 
so it's like that and there's also yeah tony gets this new backstory now where he has a very violent past which again from i was trying to research if maybe this was in some version of the stage play or i can't find any evidence that this existed before because normally tony is kind of like he is a pacifist and that's why you as an audience are like cool with him (laughs) you like tony because he's the peaceful kind romantic one in this movie that's what that's what what romeo is he's exactly he's the poet he's the one who doesn't want to get caught up in the violence and so when he actually ends up being so broken by violence that's the that's the tragedy of it that these pure souls get get swept up in the the rivalries of these you know from these houses what jets and sharks is that they're pushed this point that actually breaks them apart like violence is awful so the idea that he's like actually he's got this <laughs> rage inside of him yeah totally he could is, kill at any point like yeah, it's, it's actually, <laughs> watch out you know now you said it it's also just really a disservice to that character yeah yeah. A month's like, yeah. whoa. <laughs> Sorry, we're, we're <laughs> yeah, loading yeah, a lot on you right now. And, is it Romeo and Julia? <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, my issue with the story, it's a bit of a weird one, I guess, to people who are such big fans of this story, because, again, this is my first exposure to West Side Story, and I've heard, um, you know, that this is like a timeless you know, love story, a love story for the ages, best love story of all time, that type of thing. And I'm watching the movie, and... You know, Tony and Maria is the big relationship that they want us to also, you know, be behind and everything else. Maria decides to sleep with Tony two scenes after she finds out that Tony... Are we allowed to say this? I mean, we've been spoiling everything else. Can I, say I mean, it's West Side Story, I feel like. It's Romeo and okay. Juliet. We all okay. know what happens. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. Romeo and Juliet. Feel okay. <laughs> aware of what goes on. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, Spoiler I'll alert. Tybalt so... dies in Romeo and yeah. Juliet. I'm sorry. I don't know yeah. what to say. <laughs> okay. Okay. But Maria decides to sleep with Tony two scenes after uh, she finds out that Tony killed her brother, who she loves. And I'm watching this like, I can't... What is going no, on? Right. And then, And then the... You know, a couple of scenes after, we get a whole big song with Anita, who's rightfully pissed. And then we get a whole big song. At the end of that song, it feels like Anita is like, okay, you know, it must be love. You do what you do, but you got to leave. I'm like, why are you even minutiae of okay with this? This is crazy. I mean, I'm not any other film. It, but like, it's not. <laughs> Bernardo, does, I, I just, I, Bernardo <laughs> does kill his best friend. And like, I think in a way, it's like, it's not like a. I, I totally agree with you. And it's different. I think yeah. the fact that. The, they decide to make Bernardo the brother, like the Tybalt character, the brother. I think there's a bit of separation between a cousin <laughs> and, a, and a brother, but it is weird. This is weird. It's a weird, it's a weird film. It has, Amon, so they're literally, they're saying they love each other after like one day. This takes place over like two days, like two days. I know. So like, know. you've got to just... kind of, it's just, that's the point. It's like, it's so, uh, that's the heightened emotions of these tracks. Like, they're so in love, young lovers. Star-crossed and all that. lovers. Yeah, star-crossed I mean, lovers. Maybe, maybe it's the fault of the performances, because I just, I didn't believe it. I didn't buy it um, so much to the point where I could just ignore that. Like, when that happened, I just, I, I find it hard to really, you know, keep on rooting for this relationship that the movie is clearly behind and wants you to be behind, because it just it kind of broke my brain. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah. But again, if you if you what I'm trying to say is if you remember that it's an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. I know, I know. There's that whole aspect of it because you could it, say that still... about you could say I mean you could say that about the Baz Luhrmann Romeo and Juliet, which is modern modern setting of that story, and <clears throat> she 
she's like, oh, I'm going to say you, you murdered my cousin. But oh, well, I'll still be there for you. Yeah. I just, <laughs> okay, right. I, I just can't compete. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make any sense. That's the point of it. Yeah. The whole point is supposed yeah. to be like, it's, it's not about the specifics. It's about what it's saying about like, it's the themes. And it's just, yeah. you know, a lot of the stuff, it's not, you can't, it, you have to give it some artistic license there because mm-hmm. it's not saying literally, it's just saying that that's the emotion of love. Love is life. Like, again, it's not true. It's not true. Don't take it so literally. I think that's the point with my yeah. slide. So don't take me so so literally. Yeah. <laughs> um, Everything okay. you're saying is correct. I still, like, I want to have words with the people who've been saying, like, this is like a love story for the ages. No, it's actually... Because- no, but it's the. It's, I think it's actually watching this one reminding me just how utterly sad it all is. Um, mm. Just actually, you know, I think the. I think. The, I mean, let's talk about. I think the songs because I think what makes this musical so amazing is the music. Um, I suppose for you guys, and also the, you know, I will say this: I thought the actors delivered. Um, Clarice, what did you think? I mean, Ansel Elgort, I did not know he had that voice in him at all. And I know there's some problematic stuff about him. I don't know the ins and outs of that, to be honest. Um, And I don't want to dismiss the situation, but I suppose in this this thing, I mean, he's actually very good. Yeah, I mean, with Anzog, I would say, so there are allegations against him. I would encourage listeners to just just go and read about it because they're it's upsetting stuff and we don't want to like unload that on you yeah. um mm-hmm. but this film was all shot done yeah. before those allegations come out just to give that context um but yeah i think uh yeah it's hard to like remove that but i i i to be honest did not <clears throat> thought his voice was great didn't love his performance because like <sighs> Tony in like every version is never the most interesting character (laughs) and I you know I hope for the day where we could just have like a really exciting Tony in the role who like turns it around and really makes like (laughs) that character pop um but I also love the way Tony like I don't know about you but I thought it was quite funny the way he runs (laughs) (laughs) he was running in a really weird way and I just found it really hilarious every time (laughs) Yeah, I guess not not a dancer as well. Maybe it would be better to have a, a stronger dancer in the role. But I thought Ariana DeBose was incredible yeah. as Anita. It's interesting because I, well, I was reading about this whole narrative around the Best Supporting Actress race. And we have this interesting thing where obviously Rita Marino is also fucking fantastic in this because she is a legend. So people are saying she should get it. But I'm kind of like, oh, but it'd be also really beautiful and symbolic to give it to the new Anita and to, like, pass it on to the next generation and have it so that, you know, there's not only one Latina who's ever yeah, won an acting yeah, award. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I thought, yeah, I thought they were fantastic. Also, can I just say, wouldn't it be kind of tragic that if, like, the next time that Rita Moreno gets an Oscar nomination it's for West Side Story, it's like, she's mm-hmm. done so many other things. I think yeah. it would be really weird. I'd be, I'd yeah. be like, I don't know. It's not. I, I don't really sit behind that narrative. Um, and I also think Mike faced as Riff was, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> incredible. Uh, I, yeah, I think the supporting actors. I think that's what's so great. The supporting actors are all fantastic and uh, all Broadway trained. Can do the hit the notes, do the dancing, yeah, uh, perfectly and. 
uh when it comes to the songs i mean yeah it's i can't really listen to somewhere without crying because it's just like lyrical perfection rp steven sondheim mm. just beautiful mm. beautiful beautiful yeah yeah no i i agree again my first exposure to West Side Story. So I didn't know that, you know, I want to live in America was from West Side Story. I didn't know that I Feel Pretty was from West Side Story. So I was like, oh, that's where this is from. Uh, this is my number one track on my Spotify rap. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? When, wh- when this soundtrack is released, you better believe I'm... Listen to the original one, though, as well. It's there. Okay. Okay. I might, I might judge. But and yeah, actually, no, also I... watch the original movie, please. Because I, I, I think you'll be surprised. <laughs> you'll watch it and you'll be like, you're like, oh, I get it. What you're saying now, you'll get it. Okay, okay. Now I will do that, and I'll definitely get back to you. Um, but yeah, now I, I like the songs. Like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. I'll get back to you. You heard it here first on the Fate of Black podcast, people. A mom woman is going to watch the classic West Side Story, and then he's going to get back to Hannah Inez Flint. About what he thought about it. Okay, I want to. Uh, I want to. I said, I said, December. I, said, I want to have your views. <laughs> okay. Well, I've been given a deadline. It feels like it feels like work now. Anyway, it is work. Um, <laughs> this is your homework. Yeah, no. <laughs> I I really like that. Uh, I'm sure um, Cleese has more thoughts on it, but like the 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 fashion is incredible. That there's a dress that Anita wears at one point, which just looks luminous, um, and I really really. Love that. The choreography you gonna is great. Add, so, yeah. um, uh, Ariana DeBose to your harem. <laughs> <laughs> Gugu's there. Shailene's there. Uh, Ariana's there. <laughs> yeah. No, she, she is not an unattractive woman. I'll say that. No. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, all of that is is great. I mean, one, I mean, Sondheim does half, his lyrics do half the work. And I did really enjoy the performance. I think Rachel uh, Zegler, Ziegler, Zegler. Um, I think she was really. I think she was really strong. Maybe a, a little bit. Um, maybe she needs a little bit more practice. As this was her first role, um, and I think there were a few moments where it felt it felt a little bit forced. When she's singing, she's amazing, and I think I. I, I really. I, and I think we've talked about it, we were talking about this before, Amon, but the way that uh, they use they use Spanish, you know, they mm-hmm. Spanglish in the sense of it goes in and out of English. And I think mm-hmm. that was really, and you felt it in the singing as well. And I thought that was well done. Yeah. Um, I, I, for me, though, what I think was interesting about, I wonder if you thought this about the, the update of it. I feel like they uh, spent a bit more time. I think Officer Krupke, that song uh, for me, I think that was a really that for me that was one of the strongest numbers because it really highlighted the way they delivered the performances is actually again the how dark this whole story is about how like these kids come from broken homes and they hate themselves and their parents hate them and that's why and that they in a way they're jealous of the Puerto Ricans because they come over with families and there's a kind of community connection. It's like they see the, you know, encroaching on that space. And I think they really highlighted the racial, I think they kind of, in a way wrote, you can tell that like white people wrote, they gave them a bit more, I suppose, like nuance, I think to like the jets. Um, mm. And I don't know if they gave that a lot to the sharks. I don't think they kind of, but I suppose with the kind of, with Anita and Bernardo and stuff, they kind of get that. And Tony and Riff are really the only characters on the jets that you kind of get anything about. But I think they mm-hmm. kind of did that well. Um, 
but we were talking about earlier on, Amon, about um, they don't use subtitles uh, mm-hmm. for the Spanish bits. And you think that was a really good move. I do. I do. It just reminded me of, you know, I, I come from African descent. And when my mum is uh, on the phone with her Nigerian friends, she's, there's a lot of Nigerian sort of stuff in there, but there's a bit of English in there as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I like that they sort of brought that to uh, to, to this film. Um, the, the way in which it's directed and the way in which it's acted means that you still have a good idea of what's going on, if you, even if you don't know Spanish. So I don't think this method is going to work with all films, but in this context, it really, really does work. Um, and yeah, I like that, you know, audience has to do a little bit more work uh, to sort of, you know, engage with the story that way. I think it works. Can I um, <clears throat> drop in? Lin-Man Miranda keeps coming up in things. I already <laughs> mentioned him, but he has like a long history with this show. And one of them, I think, he, I think um, In the Heights was filming next door to West Side Story yes. at one point as well. And yeah. also, the the use of Spanish in the show, he was actually hired in 2009 for Stage Revival to do exactly that, to to translate awesome. some of the dialogue into Spanish. So that was, because I was like, oh, that's so cool that they did that for the film. And then I researched and I was like, oh, they just copied it you from know the 2009 what? show. There's a bit oh, in wow. it, I feel like we should wrap it soon, but there's a bit in it where, because now you brought up Lin-Manuel again. Um, there's a bit in it where just before Amer- uh, America starts the chat and it goes and it does the dun 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 was that originally yes. in a musical? So because the that's ding, the start ding, of ding. In the Heights. Well, so yeah. so no, that's what I was like In the Heights. The start of In the Heights is a reference to yeah. that opening song is yeah, like yeah, meant yeah, to yeah. build off the back. I was wondering that because like I can't I, I don't remember that bit, but now it's like it makes so much sense now. There's the connection there. Oh, yeah. So, so I suppose then Miranda, like getting into movies, he's not even worked on. Like, yeah, he's, he's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Omnipresent. Um, <laughs> so, um, so then I suppose I suppose let's do a screen stream or skip. I suppose like, and then also maybe sum up your final thoughts on it because I feel like we've talked a lot about bits and bobs, and maybe just give your like your verdict as well as your screen stream or skip uh, rating. So, Amon. I'd say screen. Um, I still enjoyed it despite my story misgivings. Um, and I think the the music, um, the choreography, as I say, the performances, uh, I think um, the, uh, Ariana DeBose was my MVP. I thought she was fantastic, as we've already said. And I really like David Alvarez as well. We haven't spoken much about him, but his Bernardo was really good and really vibrant too. So, yeah, screen. Oh, um. Oh, God. Okay. Well, no, I think it should be screen because it's got the Kaminsky cinematography. So it looks gorgeous. Yes, it does. Um, So I will give it a screen. But I think outside of the opportunities and the like platform it's given the cast um, to shine, I'm just, I think I'm always going to turn to the original. I just, I, I don't, I don't think this does anything <laughs> that helpful or useful in changing the legacy of West Side Story. It's always going to have a very complicated legacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm the same. I'd say Scream because I did really enjoy watching it and that's because I really love this musical. Um, and I think the lighting is beautiful. The cinematography is great. You know, certain elements of the stories, the acting, I think the acting was all sensational personally. But um, I don't, I, I don't see this as an original uh, 
piece of art I see it as this is a very good knockoff and you know I think I love musicals anyway so you know and Sondheim you know he died this year so maybe a little celebration at the cinema uh, to celebrate his work so yeah so I guess that's the screen all round so from uh from uh one latin community to a latin lover (laughs) it's being the ricardos action lucy i'm home why is this coming out now lucille ball's a threat to the american way of life does the fbi have any case against lucy I need you to help me save my marriage. How many times I gotta explain where I was and what I was doing? You gotta explain. Are you being funny right now? I'm Lucille Ball. When I'm being funny, you'll know it. This is getting out of hand. Madness. Have you been cheating on me? The story's made up. If they boo me? If they boo you, we're done. Aaron Sorkin, you got some explaining to do. Uh, We're talking about Being the Ricardos, which stars Nicole Kidman as Lucille Ball and Javier Bardem as Desi Arnaz. Uh, They are threatened by shocking personal accusations, a political smear, and cultural taboos in writer and director Aaron Sorkin's behind-the-scenes drama, Being the Ricardos, a revealing glimpse at the couple's complex romantic and professional relationship. The film takes audiences into the writer's room, onto the soundstage, and behind closed doors, with Ball and Arnaz doing one critical production week of their groundbreaking sitcom, I Love Lucy. The film also stars Nina Arianda, Tony Hale, Alia Shawkat, Jake Lacey, and Clark Gregg, Agent Coulson himself. I want, I want to start with Aaron Sorkin um, because he's long been known as a prolific writer. He obviously you know, wrote A Few Good Men to name just one of the you know, many also screenplays, The West Wing, obviously. Um, he's made a go of directing it, of, of directing the last few years with the likes of Molly's, Molly's Game and The Child of the Chicago 7. Hannah, where do you think being the Ricardos ranks with his directorial efforts so far? Very low. <laughs> Ooh, interesting. Uh, I, it was, I did not like the frame. I, I mean, again, we can't really... He's a writer director, so you can talk about it in the same, same breath because it's all his decisions, how he's done it. Yeah. The framework for me did not work. It's this, It's like... It's this weird, <laughs> so it's kind of like a framework within a framework because <laughs> it kind of does, they have talking heads, actors playing older versions of people who produce a show, doing these like talking head bits to camera. Then it goes back and it's like on this one week and then they're doing flashbacks. But it's also, I don't know if you've seen like West Wing, but he often does these episodes where it's like Wednesday night, Thursday morning. Mm. And it's just, it's, it's just, it's supposed to, I suppose it's supposed to add like, I don't know, urgency or something say this is how it's going on a week. But for me, it just, I found it very disjointed. Um, yeah, I just, I feel overall just the, the whole kind of structure of it just found, yeah, it was just, just really convoluted. And, um, and I felt like even the direction it was just a bit mundane and also maybe someone who's not less interested in someone who's less interested in the characters as he is about how a show is made. And I think as someone who's made TV shows and like, it's so focused on like the process on that, that it feels like it doesn't really get to the heart of things. Like 
you know, I get it. It's about, you know, it's called being the Ricardos, but we never really get any side of uh, Desi at all. I don't think it kind of, I never really understand his position in anything. It's obviously very Lucille focused. I agree with you that the framing device is unnecessary um, and it doesn't really work. But when we do focus on Lucille, especially, I think the film really comes to life. And I know that, you know, we're going to get into some uh, casting issues in a second, but Nicole Kidman for me really, you know, knocked, knocked this one out of the park. I, I really enjoyed her performance. Clarice, where do you stand on uh, the story, I guess, and then the performances within that? Yeah, I, I agree that... I mean, Aaron Sorkin has said that he doesn't find I Love Lucy funny, which is like, why the F are you making this then? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, I think it's, story-wise, it's a good film about the process of comedy writing. I really like those writer's room scenes and the back and forth and the fact that... Um, Nobody ever laughed, which I thought was very true to life. Like, no one laughs while writing comedy. And they're having these very intricate arguments over, you know, there's one particular joke where uh, Ricky goes to put his hands over Lucy's eyes and says, guess who? And then she pretends that she doesn't know. And Lucille's there going, this doesn't make sense. Where's the logic of it? Like, we're not going to treat the audience like idiots. I really like those intricacies. And I think it, it's like a good window into the comedy writing process. But as a movie about Lucille and Desi and, and their show and their lives, it's, I don't know. I don't know anything <laughs> about them. Like I it, just came away from yeah. anything about like, it felt like I've just kind of done a Wikipedia entry on who they are. But again, the focus being on, he's more interested in like depicting the, the, the intricacies of writing the process of writing a comedy show than it is actually into the because it's this diet doesn't feel like a, a biopic because it's not really yeah it's it's a weird it's a weird I, I'm really confused to be honest <laughs> yeah and it's very odd to me to so the film condenses like several events into one week which is the the news that she was questioned uh about her voting her putting registering for the communist party in 1936 Mm -hmm. uh the announcement that she was pregnant and the struggle about writing that into the show and also the rumors of desi's affairs like those all took over the span of several years and it's all condensed into one week here (laughs) but it just like it none of those events are explored with like any depth or interest in humanity and especially the stuff with the um the communist investigation and the the Hewitt, the house of un-american activities i never remember how it goes yeah. um because it's just it's very weird to me that we come out of the film like still not really understanding where either of these people sat like politically or how they felt about it or you know even maybe the idea that mccarthyism is bad they never get into (laughs) they never get into like whether any of this was a good idea or not the film like it does it once when desi's like because obviously he's yeah that that's the one moment where you actually that's the one moment you actually get an insight into desi's feelings as I suppose, an immigrant who's come in and the reason why he's come to America. Yeah, Mm. but I feel like I want to know more because that is interesting. No, Um, that's what I mean. That's what you always make. It's like you had a moment there 
And again, it just sped past it. Exactly. To have mm. like a, a wife who has put on who registered for the communist party and this is what annoys me about the film as well is, is that in the movie they try and play it off like it was a mistake that's what they tell the public and really she she did it to honor her grandfather who was a socialist slash communist but mm-hmm. this thing about her making a mistake i again could not find any evidence that that actually happened she was very upfront with the public about the fact that she registered to because of her grandfather and it it it's like a very weird way of trying to depoliticize the film and get it, take it further further away from how these two individuals actually how they felt about communism, which is yeah. what I want to know and what they thought about this horrific time in history when people were being blacklisted for their beliefs, and the fact that this movie positions J Edgar Hoover as like this last minute hero. I won't say how, <laughs> yeah. but there's like a thing, and everybody cheers, and you're like what the hell? How? What? It's so weird. (laughs) There's been a few films. We're going to talk about another film in a couple of weeks time that have chosen to rewrite history for their own ends. And it's always fun uh, talking to Clarice. I got another friend, Helen O'Hara, who are like history buffs. And they're like, what is going on? I, I I never tire of it. It's great. But it's interesting just listening to you guys talk about it. And I agree. You know, a lot of the times when we're talking about bio- when we're talking about biopics, we lament the fact that they've chosen to gone from that they've chosen to go from cradle to grave and you know hit all these points in a person's life and not get into it. Well, this is called sort of the opposite problem in that they've chosen to take all these things that have happened in one life and condense it into one week, which doesn't quite work either. It needs to be spread across a certain amount of time. I think it's about when you do a biopic, and it's what you're saying as well. It's like. You can you can do that. You can do different events. You can condense it to one week, but you have to have what's the truth, what we're getting at, because you can mm. you know you have to have dramatic license to be able to tell stories. Biopics are not documentaries, and even documentaries have a narrative. <laughs> so even then, there's an mm. a, an element of the do- documentarian, the storyteller, you know, align it to what he wants to say. But as long as the like the truth you understand from that unless you get that from it then it's okay then you kind of think like I'll allow the kind of like changes like um you know to take something like American crime story impeachment you know I was reading about it Monica Lewinsky was involved in it and obviously there was moments where they had to condense things down which to make it work for but as long as the truth of the situation was there the emotions and the feelings how they feel in situations there I think it works but I think the problem with this is that I didn't understand I didn't get to the truth of their emotions and their feelings um, about, again, as you said, Clarice, like, you know, what were the political leanings? How did Desi, and especially Desi, because so much is on about like his Cuban identity, but like, I don't mm-hmm. think we ever hear him talk about it really at all, how he feels about being a Cuban American. So yeah, I think it was too busy. It's just a too busy and the things it focused on were a bit kind of superficial and it kind of, in a way, I think it's just like, Sorkin who I love and I, I love his stuff although watching the West Wing I feel like he's very anti-Middle East <laughs> like this every time there's an Arab or an Arab a Middle Eastern country in it you know that it's going to be like well the Western world is going to tell you that you're terrible it's just yeah it's pretty bad but um I like him but I feel like this one I don't know maybe it's just ego uh I mean as you said Clarice he says he doesn't even think I love Lucy is funny so 
why bother me why do you care um, also, get a yeah. better opinion what the hell <laughs> it's very <laughs> funny I did want to quickly ask about the supporting cast because I've out some names there and I think all of them are great. I didn't even mention that J.K. Simmons is in this and I think he's fantastic. Nina Ariander was probably my MVP in that regard. What did you make of the supporting cast? Nina Ariander is a good example. She looked enough like Vivian Vance that I believed it instantly. The great performance. Like, not a perfect impersonation, but like, enough. Here, you've cast Nicole Kimmon and Javier Bardem, who just don't look anything like the people. I mean, Javier Bardem has, like, <laughs> such, like, granite-carved features. And if you look at a picture of Desi, like, he was a beautiful man. Um, and it's, like, a completely different energy between the two. And with Nicole Kimmon as well, like, they're both of them deliver good performances, but they are as people so far removed from who Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz were that it's just, I really struggled. And I think that's because I know who the real people are very well, but I will say a lot of America are like very, you know, Lucille Ball was one of the biggest icons of American television history. Like she's so recognizable. And I don't think this is the kind of film where you can do the like vague approximation. Mm. <laughs> You're like, yeah, yeah, good enough. I don't think with Lucille Ball, you could mm. do that. Like you have to get someone who naturally looks and moves and talks like Lucille Ball. Yeah. Um, which is not yeah. Nicole Kidman's fault. Like she did. I could see her. She studied the mannerism. She was doing it. But I think it's a casting issue. Also, she does the same, her the same, she has, I find it interesting when you hear certain people do, who are not American, their American accent sounds the same for every character they do. Yeah, yeah, I could see, for both of them, I could see little moments where they, they certain inflections were right. Like, I think she did try. <laughs> But again, that's just the thing. It's like she's got a really natural whisper tone, which, you know, she's like quite whispery, which is not, it just didn't, it was weird. I don't know. Just. It's interesting. Like I, again, shocker, don't have much knowledge, if any knowledge of the real Lucille Ball. Um, so that wasn't much of an issue for me. But I take your point, Clarice. Um, I, I thought I thought Nicole Kidman was great. But enough about the film. It's time for Screen Stream or Skip. Hannah, Skip. what do you think? Move on. Clarice. <laughs> I'm going to say stream because I enjoyed the back and forth between all the writers. And I think that's fun to watch. But I, yeah, stream. I'm also going to say stream. I like this movie. Um, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I think the performances across the board are great. I'd even mentioned Daniel Pemberton's score, which really captures the golden age um, music very, very well. Um yeah, I liked it. So, uh, one of the issues that we didn't really cover in this review was the specific casting of Javier Bardem as Desi Arnaz, um, because, uh, as people may or may not know, <laughs> very obvious in the movie, uh, Desi was Cuban, uh, Cuban-American, um, and Javier Bardem is not Cuban. He's he is Spanish. And uh, this uh, Javier Bardem <laughs> has a little bit of a track record <laughs> of uh, doing what you might call cultural ventriloquism, 
uh look we've already talked about dune so we're not going to go back there <laughs> but i said dune, what i said yeah I, said what I, said. <laughs> I mean there's been some conversation about why he's been cast as uh triton in little mermaid when that would have been a really great opportunity for a black actor to play that part uh so should actors be cast in roles outside of their race or culture it's uh not a black or white issue no fun intended but we're going to talk about it in <laughs> i mean who uh, who wants to start who who has the strongest opinion on this because i feel like everybody has strong opinions on this hannah do you want to go so hannah well i suppose I suppose one of the things that Aaron Sorkin said when he said, like, the quote when he was asked about it was, like, uh, Spanish and Cuban aren't actable. Um, nouns aren't actable, which I think is a weird thing considering, you know, there's a movie just out <laughs> where a lot of non-Italian people are acting Italian, uh, doing Italian accents, House of Gucci. So I think the idea of that is weird, but it's also kind of, you know, I, I, I've... I, I, what I realised, Paul Thomas Anderson did a uh, talked about casting Alana Heim in Licorice Pizza, and he said, you know, I wanted this girl from the San Fernando Valley who, who was, and basically said she she looks like a Valley girl, she sounds like a Valley girl, she is a Valley girl, so I'll cast her in that role. And it's like, yes, yeah, sometimes actually, you know, sometimes integral cultural things, yeah, you know, as you said about earlier on about Lucille Ball casting someone is rather than casting an Australian woman um, uh, to play Lucille, actually having someone who might be from that area, it might be a bit closer to who Louise, Louise, Lucille is as a person that might just naturally, because then you don't have to worry about that part of the acting because it's inherent, right? Some things are just inherent. And I think, you know, with Javier Bardem, you know, I think what's interesting, even in the film, they make, isn't, don't they make a joke about like, He's not Spanish. He's Cuban, that's and that's what's so with. weird about it. Because like, even you're saying like he's not Spanish just because he speaks the Spanish language, it doesn't mean that he's Spanish. So, so I think you know Javier Bardem. You know, he did No Country for Old Men, where he played an Argentinian, and I suppose because he's got darker features and he's got a thick accent, you know, it's easy for him to play any kind of any pretty much like Oscar Isaac as well. I think he's kind of benefited from that. Um, situation in that he can come and play the other role but it's like just other enough <laughs> where it's like we don't actually have to get that person we can just get someone to like you know do what white people do we're pretty used to do for like, pretty much every character ever so um yeah I think Javier Bardem needs to I think he needs to start taking some responsibility for his own choices because as much as he's casting these roles he's taking them um he's a big enough actor that he can say no you know a lot of the times we talk about and I think a lot of people of colour feel a responsibility to not take roles in case it's outside of stuff, you know, can kind of forgive like Zendaya and people for doing, because again, a lot of people are really unaware, I haven't read the book, are unaware of like the influence there, how many people I've spoke to don't even understand the Islamic and Arabic influences, even though it's, for me it's kind of obvious, but there we go, and it's not to everyone. Yeah. Uh, Amanda Stenberg, uh, they auditioned, uh, they refused to audition for Shuri because they are light skinned and they thought that the character should definitely go for a dark skinned, you know, actor. So it's like, what are the conscious choices we're making when we take on roles? So I think Javier Bardem needs to take a bit of responsibility for that. Now, I think 
what it comes down to in a lot in a lot of these situations is star power should never be used as an excuse to not get this sort of casting right um because that is i think what it comes down to for a lot of the guys making the decisions who who aren't sort of the actors themselves uh that's why dwayne johnson is a black guy that's why javier bardem is cast in this movie um and as hannah sort of said that means that there's an opportunity for to star in the big big films which goes begging um and that's wrong on the number levels because at one there are actors who are already stars in sort of Latinx and Cuba, which you can you know, go after. Uh, two, if you if you're somehow <laughs> unable to find anyone who's a star to fill that role, it's an opportunity to make people stars. I mean, we've seen the effects of In the Heights in that regard. I can't remember the name of uh, the actor, but one of the actors in In the Heights is now going to be the new Batgirl. That doesn't happen if she's not cast in In the Heights. That was what made her a star and put her on people's radar. Um, so rather than sort of go the obvious star power route, if you make that extra effort and cast it right, then you'd be introducing sort of, you know, just, it's, it's just better for everyone representation-wise and for audiences um, because more likely than not, the person, if you cast it right, the person you're casting will have a unique take um, and a more authentic take on that character for being part of the um for being part of what that character represents in terms of where that character comes from um and yeah missed opportunities in that regard just really really suck so make the extra effort people is what i'm saying yeah i don't really have anything to add but i guess it's also just like not accurate (laughs) you know it's like being recorded is a great example like that's not what does he looked like at all (laughs) and um i think it also like gives audiences like a really warped view of what our world looks like you know like it's Mm -hmm. not representative of the world that we live in and like that's such a basic thing is to make movies about the people in the audience like it Mm. it doesn't seem like it should be that hard (laughs) and you mentioned black adam amon which i have very strong feelings about (laughs) <laughs> but I think, you know, that type of thing, you know, The Rock is playing this character, um, this anti-hero, and he's been, I think, for 10 years, I think 10 years ago, who's linked to it, which was, it's still kind of a different time. But it's like, we've gone past the point where you should still be playing this character when it is a, an identifiably Middle Eastern uh, anti-hero you know, you read the comics, everything about him is mid, like, it's super Middle Eastern. So the idea that you think because you're the rock and you're like the nicest person in show business, you think that you should still hold, you should, like, it it should, you should 100% have dropped out on that. And what frustrates me is like, you know, this character, yeah, fair enough, it's a Kandak, it's like this Kandak, it's like this made up country between, I don't know, like, is I can't remember specific, but it's like Middle East, wherever, classic, Let's mm-hmm. not actually put them in places. Let's just do these made-up places. But mm-hmm. you know, if what are you going to Americanize him? Like, what? How? What? How are you going to speak in this voice? Is it going to be an Arab? Are you going to be doing an Arab accent? Are you going to be using? You know, talk about um, uh, in 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 West Side Story, going between English and Arabic. That is going between English and Spanish. Going between English and Arabic is very very much part of. 
uh, Arabic culture as well, because again, when you're in a world where most of the places speaks English, you know, you switch between that kind of like code switching language. So like, so is he going to speak any Arabic or can you even speak Arabic? Can you do the accent? Is it going to be authentic? So, you know, it, it is, you have a responsibility, same way The Rock has a responsibility to step back from a role. Javier Bardem is a big enough star that he could step back from these roles and he's choosing not to. So, you know, I, I wouldn't, up and coming actors, I wouldn't criticize them for taking the opportunities where they are. Look what Ed Skrine did. He gave up the role. I mean, I know Hellboy, the Reboy yeah. wasn't that great, but like, do you remember that time when it's like <laughs> people actually did yeah. that? And now it's like, mm -hmm. that's like forgotten. No one cares. It's like, yeah. I don't know, we should just demand yeah. better. It's frustrating. Mm. And also, I wonder, like, just to slightly add to that, like, there's such a, also, there's such a, a lack of, role models in popular culture and you know people to adapt things from is that you're in the position now where it's like you're having people f all f have to like fit themselves into boxes if that makes sense it's like i i remember when the aladdin came out with naomi scott like her talking about um she looked up to jasmine even though Jasmine was so clearly coded to be Middle Eastern because she didn't have anybody else. Yeah, exactly. So that gave and her I the think, right to play that role. And it's like... Yeah, it so like okay. in her mind, like, no, it's not an excuse, but it's like, I think that feeds into it as well because, you know, there isn't this like giant gallery of Polynesian superheroes for The Rock to, to look to, which absolutely doesn't excuse it. But it's like, there needs to be active work from studios to to push and be like we need to like actually create create the role models for the yeah. kids you know so that we don't get into these situations in the future so that everybody feels represented in the yeah. future it's but, yeah i mean it's also like you know what's interesting you know we talk about black adam but also moon knight where oscar isaac's come in to play the character which it's interesting, again, because, you know, he plays a lot of Jewish characters, even though he's not, like, he doesn't identify as Jewish. I think he said, like, you know, I feel like he's had to say, well, I think a great-granddad in the wild back was, like, and so, like, and, and, and Mark Spector is a character where, like, he's, it's so funny. I would compare him to, in a way, like, his guilt, his religious guilt is similar to, like, Daredevil. You know, he's got Catholic guilt, whereas this guy's, like, his dad was a rabbi, and there's an interesting thing about the fact that he's the avatar for this Egyptian god, <laughs> Konsu. And so, like, and he's, in a way, he's like, he can, uh, he's, the, the religion there is to this god instead. It's kind of like him to, I don't know, it's a complicated it's kind of situation. But you've got Oscar Isaac playing it, playing a character when he is, again, he's not Jewish. He's not, you know, that's fine enough. But also, like, you've got an Egyptian, he's an avatar for Egyptian god. So, that would felt like a role that it should be a Jewish actor, someone who is culturally Jewish playing that role. And they haven't got that. Mm. But then you've got, again, the people who are making it are like Middle Eastern and you've got a Middle Eastern character coming in, like an actress coming in. So it's like, what, where's the culture in this? Where is it going to fit in? And is it because it's not like an obvious culture, like black culture or East Asian culture where, you know, it's so prevalent actually in our world that it's easy to find people like it, you can't get away with doing it half-heartedly and I wonder if it's like because some ethnic minorities are not given the same respect or the acknowledgement than others that you know people think they can just get away with it now 
I mean, hopefully it's going to change better. I'm not saying it's perfect for, you know, East Asian or black, black representation at all. But there does seem to be a bit of like a hierarchy when it comes to um, what people make effort and what they're willing to, what people are willing to overlook. And certainly with Latin America um, and Middle East MENA culture, I think we're kind of a bit low down the pecking order of getting the, I suppose, authenticity going, especially when the creators um, are white. One day I will be like, I'll come on here and I'll talk about like something Middle Eastern that's like a blockbuster and be like, this is great. This is my Black Panther. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm looking for that there. And I, and I hope listeners don't just think I'm just like being a negative Nelly about this type of thing. But it is, it's just like, I, I, it's just frustrating for me because it feels like when you, again, you know, when you don't have that much choice and you don't have that much representation, when you see, when you see that people, you know, I will say this, people kicked up a fuss about Aaron Sorkin's quote about Javier Bardem playing Desi Arnaz as a Spanish guy. No one said anything about the fact that he's playing like, a, like an, basically an Arab coded Fremen in Dune. There wasn't at all that conversation. There was no trending subjects. So when you don't even have like the kind of, I suppose, wider support from the community, it's really stressful when it feels like you're the only person talking about it um, and only one who cares about it. And you're kind of, how do you make change? Because, you know, again, we're so small compared to other ones who've got louder voices. So that's why I kind of feel like I constantly have to bring it up because if I don't talk about it, then, you know, it kind of, the conversation goes away. Mm. You're so so right. thank and you for bearing the, with me you guys, but you're so right to talk about it and it's the really basic thing that i i believe really strongly in the idea that our ideas of ourselves are really formed by the popular culture that we consume Absolutely. as children and i think that's why people really like to brush this off but i think it's really important in these like comic book movies in star wars and all this stuff to have everybody to be able to see themselves on screen mm. and everyone to be able to relate and like it's for so many years like kids have had to to kind of make little personal sacrifices in their mind and be like oh well I'm not really in this movie but I like I guess I'll like this character it's like no people deserve to go into the cinema and be like wow that's me I can be a superhero I can be a Jedi that stuff is really important for like psychological development and I get annoyed when people dismiss it like it's important <laughs> it is well, thanks for tuning in and happy viewing via whatever medium is the safest for you. Do subscribe, rate, and leave us a review if you love the podcast. It really does make a difference. And send us all your thoughts about, send us your favorite West Side Story song. <laughs> there's so yeah. many to choose from. And start sending us, and you know, I guess there's still, there's still a few films to go, but start thinking about what top tens you want to send in because we will read them out. In a couple of yes time. yes or if there's anything that like we haven't covered on the podcast that mm. you've seen and you're great and you want to shout out we would really love that as well uh, and you can tweet all of that to uh, using the hashtag fade to black pod and then you can individually follow us at uh, i'm at clarice lou on twitter and at clarice lockery on instagram i'm at hannah flint on twitter and at hannah ines flint on instagram and I'm at Amon Woman on Twitter and Instagram. Farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black. Mm -hmm.